On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're discussing 1973's Savage. Welcome back to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz on this exciting episode. We're taking a look at Serio H. Santiago's black exploitation action film Savage from 1973, starring James Englehart, Carol Speed, Lada Edmund Jr., and of course, the man himself, Vic Diaz, as the Minister of Defense. Yay! I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always <laughs> is White Shampoo, Doug Tilly. <laughs> I like. That I wrote you, that, Liam. I like that you wrote that, and I didn't think to to change it, and then I said it with the with the air of conviction that it needed. White shampoo, Doug Tilly. What's going on, Doug? How are you doing? I'm doing great, Liam. Not so bad at all. It's been a good week. Uh, I don't want to, you know, one thing that I've leaned into a little heavily uh, for people who listen to a lot of our podcasts is for some reason talking about the weather, which is like the most boring thing to talk about. But no, life is good. Uh, I'm glad we're here talking about uh, Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. And I, th- I, the reason I called myself White Shampoo in the outline is because I recently saw the film Black Shampoo. For the sure. first time, I enjoyed it very much, but that does lead into, I think, some of the things you want to discuss in this opening segment before we talk about Savage. Yeah, this opening segment is interesting for people who listen to a lot of our podcasts. We, <laughs> we, we tend to follow a pattern, only uh, unlike some of our other podcasts, there's no news about Vic Diaz, and I think we all know why. So, um, No, the question of this podcast is whatever happened to him, so tell me why. Why don't we hear much <laughs> from old Vic Diaz anymore? <laughs> he's not he's not with us anymore. It's no. a weird, I know it's a weird name for the podcast, y'all, but we, I, I, I was forced to come up with something because I wanted to talk about Vic Diaz movies. That's how it is. Okay. <laughs> This movie, uh, here's a big reveal. This movie is one of the first Vic Diaz movies I noticed Vic Diaz in, uh, which is fun. Um, This is, in fact, a film that played at uh, what I could really call my the beginning of my journey into maybe not exclusively the beginning, but sort of the beginning of really taking an interest in exploitation cinema. Uh, Because at the very first X-Fest ever... They play. I think Liam that there should be a drinking game for our podcast. That every time you mention X Fest, you should take. A I drink. know. Well, especially on <laughs> especially on this show, but I guess on the Eurocrime show too, it comes up a lot. Sure. But it's it's important to me because you know, um, you know, to to say it in a very sort of quick way, I was aware of black exploitation because I listened to hip hop music. That's the reality. You, you hear Black Caesar if you listen to Public Enemy or anybody else, you hear about some of these movies. But I wasn't aware, really, of the larger phenomena of exploitation other than being into martial arts. But you can kind of like martial arts without knowing that in the U.S., martial arts and samurai and other films like that tended to live in grindhouse cinemas. You know, if you grew up watching it on TV, you might not know anything about that history, right? So... um Really, my deciding to explore more exploitation cinema generally uh, was kind of inspired by X-Fest, Doug. Like, I, I was interested in those movies. I was aware that they existed. Things like the those uh, 
uh, trailer compilations that like Alamo put out and other people sure. put out. Uh-huh. Those yeah. helped me be aware that these were things that existed in the world. But I was so focused on horror for a long time as well as then, you know, art, cinema, and stuff like that. But, like, when it came to genre, I was so much more focused on horror. And really, without X-Fest, I don't know if I would have gotten ex- as excited as I did about Westerns. certainly wouldn't have known anything about Polizia Tecci movies. So sure. it, it was an important experience. And Savage played there. And it's, it's this is an interesting note, because we'll talk more about this later. That means the first time I saw Savage, it looked good, because it was a 35-millimeter yeah. print. <laughs> it was a bit beat up. But uh, if I compare what I watched that day to what I just watched for this podcast, who boy, they are very different experiences, visually speaking. Someone needs to find that print and just do a 2K scan on it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit, though, that I always thought was interesting about this film, right, is that this is kind of a mashup of two different worlds. Like, doing this Vic Diaz podcast, we've talked a lot, and unless this is your first episode, you probably are aware of this, about the phenomena of low-budget filmmaking in the Philippines, that people went to the Philippines, people like Roger Corman and other folks, to make movies. And honestly, uh, directors like Sirio H. Santiago got the benefit from that. They they didn't just make Philippine-focused productions. They got to make international movies with international distribution. It's fully possible that without the Roger Corman interference, let's say, that Sirio H. Santiago's entire filmography would be almost entirely unknown in the West. Yeah, certainly we we wouldn't be able to track most of it down because we've tried for a few things, and they're really hard to find. So this really does, as much as it also represents maybe the darker side of the word exploitation, it also represents maybe the positive of that phenomena, which is opportunity, that exploitation Mm -hmm. films did give people opportunities. Speaking of which, the other genre uh, that can be both good and problematic that this film is sort of steeped in <laughs> is black exploitation. And I mm-hmm. realize that we haven't had a chance to discuss much black exploitation, uh, at least on this show, and kind of on our other shows ever, really. So I just I wanted to start there. Um, you know, what are some of your favorite examples of black exploitation? And is this the only black exploitation film uh, you've seen set in the Philippines, really? It's interesting that you say that because the first Filipino set black exploitation movie I ever saw was also in a cinema. Uh, I saw it at an all night uh, 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter marathon out in Toronto. And, and that was Bamboo Gods and Iron Man, which was, I think, also, no, actually, it wasn't directed by Serial Santiago, but also did star, star James Inglehart like uh, Savage does. And, um, and, and like yourself, I watched that and then tried to track down a copy at home and the only versions that were available at that time were absolutely garbage looking just like this. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of crossover in terms of both the cast and the production in it. I think it was made just a year later. So yeah, so in terms of black exploitation and Philippines, it's it's really kind of that circle uh, of time frame. Yeah, and it sure. makes sense, right? This was 73, 74 would have been the heaviest time, you know, post shaft uh for uh, American and foreign made black exploitation movies. Yeah, totally. Like and and the idea by the way 73, right? That you could have gone to a cinema and maybe one week seen Savage and then the other week seen, you know, Fist of Fury or something like that or uh well yeah, it's what's the what's the American name for King Boxer? For uh, uh, f- uh, f- uh fate um uh, five fingers of death. 
Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. Is it? Yeah, it is. Five Fingers of Death. I think that's right. <laughs> Anyways, the point is, a lot of a lot of amazing stuff came out in '73. It was a crazy year. But right? by the way, Liam, Vic Diaz is in Bamboo Gods and Iron Man, so we will watch it at some. Oh, time. awesome! I'm excited. I didn't. I've never even heard of that one, so I'm excited to see it. So back to the other question: What are some of your favorites when it comes to black exploitation? It's it's a genre that we've talked about a lot off mic, but I don't think we've had a chance to talk about it on one of our shows before. You know, it's interesting. I was kind of lucky because my introduction to the genre came from black-led and black-directed uh, examples of the genre, sure, which I think yeah. eased me into it in a little way. So my favorite black exploitation movie when I was a teenager, early 20s, was Dolomite, which I watched all the time. I just watched it over and over again. And also Milton Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Um, which, you know, it's interesting because they really were, in terms of independent examples of black cinema at that time period, they're, they're very different in a lot of ways. But there are similarities, right? They very much have an independent spirit to them. And were also huge financial successes released in a non-standard theatrical way uh, and show that there was an audience available. And without those two movies, you certainly wouldn't have had Shaft or, or bigger examples of it. I do really like Shaft, by the way. And I do think that it actually still stands out. Gordon Parks, I think, is a... I think he was able to kind of walk that line between mainstream and non-mainstream cinema. Um, but but in terms of my favorites afterwards, it's one of those things where I dip in and out of. Just recently, I was watching, as I said, Black Shampoo and Black Caesar. So I, I have mixed feelings about it, just for the same reason that I'm sure you're going to voice your mixed feelings. This might surprise people, Liam, but I'm white. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I recognize the troublesome aspect of trying to um, chase trends and especially trying to like make a black version of a white movie, which black shampoo is exactly that thing. But it's also, as many people have said before, and, and you know, a lot of people have kind of pushed back against the whole black exploitation name because of like who is being exploited here. You know, black actors are getting paid. They're getting profile. Some of them are becoming superstars, right? You get your Pam Greer and your Fred Williamson and people went on to have like lengthy, you know, very impressive careers. Uh, even if after the kind of boom period of the seventies, their, their careers were never quite the same afterwards. And it's just like, do we have the uh, independent black uh, films of the late 70s, like Killer Sheep, if we don't have black exploitation that coming before it? Did it all lead together? I think there's a lot of questions that I don't feel prepared or, or intelligent enough to necessarily discuss. I will say a lot of these movies of the 70s are very entertaining to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, you know, there is a uniqueness to seeing these black actors being portrayed as being very strong and being very independent and also that the villains in a lot of these movies are usually white and it's just you know it's, it, and 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 white and racist and white and overtly terrible and when you watch a lot of movies like i do from like the 40s and 50s and 60s like the, the stark difference on display is really out there right i mean you go from never seeing a black face on camera at all unless they were like it, like especially if you watch like a movie from the fifties, right? Sure. Almost the only time that you'll see a black actor show up is when they're carrying bags for someone or they're showing someone to their hotel room, and it went on and on for years and years. And I know that there are exceptions to that, but in a lot of mainstream movies, right up until the sixties, uh, and so the it it feels like a, um, it feels like people chasing money. It feels it does feel exploitative, but it also feels kind of in some ways like a necessary correction to be like, look. There's an audience here, not just a black audience. There's an international audience that wants to see these films, that these actors can be stars, and this will last past this period, right? So this it'll be very hot for a little while, but it won't just go away afterwards. Because, I mean, basically variations on black exploitation would last into the 80s and 90s, but I feel like it did establish 
um, some really positive things, even if some of the motivations weren't weren't entirely positive. I appreciate that, Doug, and I appreciate you doing so much hand wringing about it because then I don't have to do as much. Uh, <clears throat> I this is one of my favorite genres of film, period. Uh, and I once I got over certain things that did give me anxiety, I was able to just admit that that they're just my favorite movies. So like, not only do I have favorites of the genre, things like Trouble Man or Superfly or, um, as you already mentioned, Sweet Sweetbacks or um, uh, even some things a little more obscure, like MMA, you know, I would I would sort of include, or uh, even Brother Charles. Uh, sure, Brother Charles. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, or even like a, a, a lesser known movie like Top of the Heap, you know, sure. is, is mm-hmm. pretty important to me. Um, I just recently watched Watermelon Man for the first time as well, and that's an unbelievable movie. Uh, again, it's I do feel like you kind of got to separate some of these independent artists and even some of the white independent artists, like in that case, um, uh, Robert Downey Sr., right? People who were really working outside the system and really yeah. trying to push boundaries compared to even someone like a Jack Hill or Larry Cohen who were still making, you know, low budget movies, but we're also trying to serve people and, you know, putting all these exploitation elements in because they knew they had to sell it to like drive-ins. Sure. But even the, a lot of those I love, you know, oh, and, me too. And Absolutely. The, 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 you know, uh, I'm more of a coffee person than a Foxy Brown person, but sure. you know, Pam Greer is amazing. Um, it, so all that to say, given time, and IMDb, so I could look up some stuff. I could have a, a list of twenty black exploitation movies that are important to me, not just in that genre, but as movies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order to get there, I did have to admit a few things. One, some of these movies, like any genre film, are in fact money grabs, and because they are money grabs in a realm in which race is a factor, even some of these actors that were given great opportunities were also exploited to some extent, often not given other opportunities for acting outside of this, what was considered a genre, though I think even calling black exploitation a genre is not really fair. It was a trend, right? It was a trend. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it covered a lot of different other genres. Like Blackula, you know, is is Mm -hmm. is part of this even though it's a horror movie you know and and i think i just great... watched the black six for the first time which is a biker movie yeah in fact it's another movie i saw on one of those all night uh festivals but yeah yeah you're right yeah they, they dipped into all these different genres like cop and like like you know how shaft was basically you know it, it it was fulfilling a pattern that was already established in terms of a kind of movie right but just putting a black actor in the right. lead changes all the dynamics around well, and for me, and you've heard me talk about this, I have a complicated relationship with Shaft in, in that um, <clears throat> I love Shaft, actually. It's a great movie. But part of me would rather a Superfly, even though there's parts of Superfly that make me uncomfortable, too. Um, I feel more comfortable with a, a criminal living outside the system who forces us to question our notions of good and evil and then shaft is like just a little bit more part of the the system you know what i mean and so I, i'm a little I mean, I'm like, glad remember remember we watched the shaft remake right, right where he basically right. is a cop i mean in fact he is an ex-cop i mean at least in the original version of shaft he's a private detective which is very much you know he's he's c- constantly wrinkling against cops 
Sure, but there are a lot of black exploitation movies where the criminal themselves is is uplifted. You know, in fact, I I I think you could make an interesting argument. You know, in uh, Malcolm X's autobiography, he talks about how you know if civil rights doesn't work, then all you'll be left with is is the criminal because that's the only you know like you murder all the civil rights le- leaders. Yeah, who's who's left? And and that sounded probably very judgmental to people. But if you take away your moral bias against people who commit crimes uh, and base your judgment of them only on their willingness to do violence to innocent people, you realize that there were criminals, whether we like it or not, who were fucking community leaders because they were just trying to make things a little bit easier for people, and that was their method of doing it. Now, granted, there were also monsters. It's sort of celebration of the mafia and things like that, right? Right. The idea that these are people who they make the community work, and you take them away, and maybe a worse element comes up, that sort of thing. Right, 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 right. So all that to say, there are things that still do give me anxiety about even using the term black exploitation. Sure. But the movies themselves, a lot of them are great. And the fact that some of them are terrible stereotypes that like clearly are offensive, that's no surprise. You know, that's going to be true anywhere you go in 70s Hollywood. So part of me is kind of like, yeah, the, those ones suck. But the ones that are good are really, really good and, and are very important to me. Um, oh, and we didn't mention, of course, my favorite of all time when I want to make sure that we mentioned, which is yeah. The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Which you introduced me to, which is unbelievable. I can't believe it's not talked about all the time. What an amazing movie. I 100% think it's a combo of suppression in that when it first came out, the FBI literally tried to make this fucking thing go away. And then people are uncomfortable with the name. Like, yeah. they talked about it on recently on Twitch of the Death Nerve. And one of the hosts had to straight up admit, I never checked this movie out because the name made me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) And like one of the other co-hosts, I think it was Charles, and John was like, but you've seen Boss. So I was going to say, right? This may make you uncomfortable. (laughs) And it it just did, though, right? And I think that's true of other – I mean, when I mentioned we were watching it, we we screened it, y'all, for Cinepunks. And I mentioned that to someone. They were like, you're doing what now? Like just – assuming it was some awful offensive thing and i was really pushing the thing the uh, and and unless you're pro cop or pro government there's really nothing to be offended by in that sense you know but i think it's because people forget that spook is a term for spies as yeah. well as a gross racial term and right. that the name of it is has a double meaning a double Absolutely. meaning that is really good and really works really well and it's, it's, like a, a, revolutionary, it's a revolutionary movie yeah. i mean it's uh, it goes so much further than you would think if you had not seen it before right it just it very much feels like a rallying cry honestly so does watermelon man even though that was directed yeah. by a white man like it feels that by the end of that movie it's like you know the idea of taking to the streets and act becoming an activist that's something that is missing from a lot of particularly yeah. white led uh black exploitation movies that before before we move on to the next question i do want to mention have you ever seen the 90s film watermelon woman i, I have but that's many years ago at this point but yeah that that's gotten a lot more profile i think over in recent years yeah it has because i think it was re-released in a really nice version and it was on criterion channel might even still be on there for now if anyone wants to know uh, what the video store that kind of shaped my love for uh, uh, independent and uh, and like uh, foreign cinema it was like, uh, they should watch Watermelon Woman because she works at TLA in, oh, so in cool. the movie. Yeah, it's really – it was actually – I didn't know that. When I first started watching it, I didn't realize how Philadelphia the movie was. And I was like, oh, not only is it Philly, it's Philly from my childhood because I grew up <laughs> in the 90s and the movie's from the 90s. So anyways – one you last know, it's question funny that you were saying about oh, the idea of sorry uh, uh, the idea of kind of the way that black exploitation 
also it, that you couldn't call it a genre because it fits into so many other genres. But that's also what Savage does, right? Because this is the exact same sort of pattern that we've seen in things like The Big Bird Cage, where it's like a, a bunch of revolutionaries again, yeah. kind of rising up against a dictatorship. Except in this case, instead of having white actors uh, in the lead, or in, in that case, there was a mixture of, of black and white actors. That's specifically that we have one strong black man who's basically the lead that everyone follows, right, and becomes the de facto leader at some point in the movie. So yeah, it's interesting just to see that even in a as specific uh, a genre as. Filipino action movies involving rebels rising up against the government that black exploitation fit into that as well. But what this movie, yeah, is tr- it does that I think is worth mentioning is that it transposes a lot of the themes of other black exploitation movies. That's right. Into a context where there are literally two black characters. That's it. The whole rest of the the cast is either a couple of white people or uh, uh, native Filipino folks. And so mm-hmm. I was kind of wondering what you thought of that. How does this international context work for this kind of story? Um, and, and, you know, we've seen it, as you mentioned, in some other films, uh, but I think it's the most explicit here in this movie. What do you think about that, about moving those themes and ideas of black exploitation into someplace like the Philippines? I actually like it because it's vocalized in the yeah. movie, I think, in a really smart way, uh, which is the idea that, that the struggle is the same everywhere to a certain extent, that, that it's just a foot being put on you. Uh, I don't think it, it cleanly uh, transposes, you know what I mean? Where it's just, you know, they talk about the racism that they felt, but they also, in those two black characters I'm talking about within Savage, they talk about how they don't really have a home. Right. And that's right. something that that was kind of you don't get a lot of it in regards to the lead character's background. But you realize that he was you know, he got uh, caught doing some sort of criminal act and basically forced to enlist. And he went to Vietnam and he just feels like he doesn't have a home to go back to. But what he is seeing now in the Philippines, where he was working as a mercenary, is basically a variation on what he saw back in America, except it's just a different group who are being stomped on. So I like that idea that it's it's basically taking those themes of you know, uh, taking action and rising up and pushing against your oppressors. Is it making it on a larger level that we've kind of already seen, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> unnamed rebellion in unnamed country? Yeah, exactly. Like We never get to know that they're literally in the Philippines. So. I was, I, you know, you have to think that the Filipino leaders at that time period, they like they never vocalize. They never say this is the Philippines and they are a corrupt leadership that are dictators that deserve to be overthrown. But like there's like a dozen movies where that's the main theme and they're all Filipino actors that are being overthrown. Yeah, I well, well, you know, I was going to ask you about this, but we can talk about it now. Do you think it is meant to be the Philippines, or do you think that a lot of these producers just think, well, it could be anywhere in Asia, and it doesn't really matter what where it is, because most viewers aren't going to know one way or the other. They're just going to see actors who don't look like them. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. I don't think that there's a statement being made here specifically about the Philippines. Though you think Sergio Santiago would have some inkling about how that would look right right but right but people i guess just like most of the people maybe it maybe it did would have struck a nerve within the philippines itself among people watching it. i don't know how popular these movies were in the philippines but you think that they must have gotten a decent amount of play since a filipino director made them but i really don't know and it's a good question to ask because i watch it and it's like now we've seen so many of these films it's like obviously this is the philippines but when you don't say it Sometimes it feels like they want it to be like Mexico, you know what I mean? Or Spain or something 100%. like that. 100%. Yeah, so it, it's 
And and I think they reinforce that sometimes by even the dress that you see people in and things like that. So, yeah, it, it sometimes it feels like they're intentionally being as vague as possible. While when you look at everything around it and you see the people on screen, you're like, oh, this is obviously the Philippines. Well, we're going to take a quick break, everyone. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about 1973's Savage. Savage. That's his name. Bullets are his business. He's the baddest dude with the biggest gun. He's savage. I'm a technician. Bringing in the old American know-how, huh? Peace Corps, soft imperialism, and all that. Well, not quite like that. I know your guns were hired. You really went off half cocked this time. I heard about Moncada. Shut up! Shut your mouth. He's savage. See what he does? Just stick it to the fun. The pigs couldn't plug him. The cooler couldn't keep him. And now the army can't off him. He's more than a man. He's a death machine. Jim Haygood, a young, black, and brilliant mercenary, becomes the legendary leader of a rebel army. It's 1973's Savage, which I keep saying that way because it does have an exclamation point on the end, which is a weird choice, but I like it. I like it. Uh, directed by... I wonder, Lee, I'm sorry to interrupt you so early. Yeah. I wonder if the reason it has an exclamation mark yeah. is because in 1973, there was a TV movie directed by Steven Spielberg called Savage, that if you look uh... up, try to look up information on this movie, that Spielberg movie comes up like 99% of the time. It's almost impossible to look up this movie on Letterboxd because of that. Wow. I mean, you know, I didn't do any research for this episode, so I have no idea. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was directed by Sirio H. Santiago, who we've discussed before uh, for movies like uh, The Vampire Hookers and <laughs> Firecracker and other things. Um, we, people might also know Sirio H. Santiago from movies like TNT Jackson or Naked Vengeance or Silk. I don't know what Silk is, but I saw it on the IMDb. <laughs> He's featured pretty heavily in the Machete Maidens Unleashed documentary. Yeah, very much. Uh, and, you know, he, he was a producer and director. I, does that mean he did a lot of production other than his own movies, Doug? Or did he only produce the ones I think he, he produced a lot of Filipino work. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, he's not only is he someone that you would know if he, if you were familiar with uh, this era of exploitation cinema, he also did within the Philippines, a lot of uh, Vietnam war movies. He worked a ton with Roger Corman. Um, And, you know, because he worked with Roger Corman and on some other productions, he worked with a lot of people who would end up becoming important like Jonathan Demi or Joe Dante. Um, In 95, he was even named the president of the Philippine film development funds by president Ramos. Um, the reality is he's kind of a titan in uh, Filipino cinema and in certain ways is important uh, for U.S. exploitation stuff as well. Um, though, you know, a lot of his stuff obviously is in the Philippines. I, I'm, I would be surprised if our listeners hadn't seen at least one movie he was, you know, a part of. Right. Certainly involved in because he produced all those Jack Hill Philippine yeah, 100%. Uh, film movies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was written by Ed um, Maydard, Medard, Ed Maydard. Uh, this is his only credit aside from acting as a beatnik doorman in 1962's A House of Sand. Uh, as we already said, this stars James 
Eagleheart? Eagleheart? How do you say his last name? Doug? I say Eagleheart because you you would think it would be Ingleheart, yeah, but it yeah, doesn't yeah, have yeah. an N in it, so it's James yeah. Eagleheart. Uh, Lotta Edmund Jr., Carol Speed, Sally Jordan, uh, Vic Diaz, uh, Eddie Gutierrez, who I was kind of surprised that I recognized from some other things. Sure. It's not a huge role in this movie. Um, and someone who isn't on our little list here, but I noticed, is our man Subas, you know? Remember mm-hmm. Subas? Huh? Yeah. Um, anyways, it, it is the sort of film uh, that people talk about a lot, but I've met a lot of people who love both these Filipino movies and black exploitation films who haven't seen this movie. They've only heard about it. And maybe that's because, as we sort of uh, uh, said before, um, there's not a good version of this movie basically anywhere. I mean, the version that we watched is bad. The version that's on Tubi is bad. Um, it's just not... It's not a film that's gotten that Blu-ray treatment. It didn't even really get a DVD treatment. No, it doesn't uh, look like it. That I think it deserves. So um, before we get into why I think that's a tragedy against cinema, I want to ask you, Doug, what did you think of Savage? Well, this is the second time I've seen this film, and the first time was also because of you. Yep, it was. (laughs) uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, I did an all-night streaming um, a marathon of films where I had certain uh, podcasters pick a couple of movies and do little intros for them. And the movie that you picked, or one of them, was Savage. The other one was Dudes. I don't know if you remember that, Liam. <laughs> yeah, that was a mistake. Savage, I feel good about. And I remember even showing Savage, I'm like, there's a couple of parts of Savage that are a little rough, but I think people will be fine with it. And I had not seen Dudes in so long that when we watched Dudes, I was like, Oh, right. This movie sucks. I forgot. <laughs> I don't think it sucks. And I know a lot of people love that movie, but there's a lot of iffy indigenous stuff in there that has not aged particularly well. Yes. I mean, I think Savage is a lot of fun. It really does Agreed. try to uh, implement a lot of those black exploitation elements. And they do fit, I think, pretty well with these kind of revolutionary ideas. But I think the reason that this movie works is because of its lead. I think James Hart is a great lead. I think he's way better than a lot of actors that did a lot more work than he did. I know him best. I know we were going to talk about him in a bit anyway. But I know him best from Beyond the Belly of the Dolls, where he has a kind of a memorable role in that. And I've seen his some of his other movies, like as I already mentioned, Bamboo Gods and Iron Man. But... Like he, I'm surprised that he didn't get more work uh, in both the 70s and beyond. He has a great look. He really does command the screen. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of necessarily dramatic range or anything like that. But I mean, you can see why he was he he was the kind of person who could um, take the lead in something like this. And I mean, yeah. it's a hard role, right? I mean, it's a really difficult to be <laughs> basically have these group of commandos who've been working together for years and years say, hey, this black American who up until recently was actively working against us, maybe he should lead us. Yeah, I got I want to jump in on this one here, Doug, because this is a discussion point I wanted us to have. Um, the first time I saw this movie, I liked him, but I was a little like, okay, it, it wasn't a high point of me for the film. On the second viewing, I was really struck by how, though the character is mostly moody, right? He's just, he's in his head a lot. He's frustrated. He's definitely someone who um, goes through some stages of, of where he's at. I, sure. On this second viewing, I was really struck by how Iglehart uh, is able to add maybe a little more depth to a character that could be very surface. I mean, his main the main thing he brings to the role, right, is his size. This is a giant man yeah. with killer sideburns, by the way, who you believe could beat up 
almost anyone in the world. Like he just is this huge mammoth dude. He yeah. also has a very deep voice and a commanding presence. Yeah, yeah. So that could be the whole thing. It's just that. But I think he actually does add without chewing up the scenery or being ridiculous, he adds a certain amount of like brooding contemplation to this character such that when he does make the turn to be like, I'm not just doing this to stay alive. I now care about what I'm doing and I care about this cause. You fucking believe it, man. He sells it. And that's like not easy to do. I I think we underplay how a strong performance in a movie that's mostly fun can help sell that movie a hundred percent. And I think he's one of the reasons that this movie really does work and isn't just a footnote, right? It's, it's actually pretty fun. And part of that is because he adds something to this character and it's not like he has a lot of big speeches. There's not a lot there for him other than fighting and a few cool things, but I really do believe his performance is one of the reasons that this movie is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he's not a dick swinging asshole in it. You know what 100%. I mean? And like, I really love Fred Williamson as a performer, even though he's, almost certainly a piece of shit person in real life but like he he has a swagger because you can tell he believes that he is a badass on screen right and you can feel that in his performances but this isn't like a Fred Williamson performance there is a i don't know if vulnerability is the right word but there is at least the uh, uh, I think contemplation, I think you already said that. I think that's it. There's a sense of contemplation within him. And maybe it's the fact that he has to make that switch from being a mercenary to being, you know, someone who works with these rebels. But, I mean, there there, there does seem to be something going on in his head. And that kind of is projected on the screen. And I think he does a really good job. Um, and, and it makes me curious. You know, we're going to see some more of his films because he did work with Vic Diaz a few more times. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to see a little bit later in the 70s if he still was able to maintain that, or even if he is able to maintain that outside of this movie. I said I've seen him in Bamboo Gods and Iron Man, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, it might be possible that this is the highlight of his career. If so, it's not a bad one. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against him, because this is a it's a pretty solid thing. Now, the movie isn't perfect at all. I don't want, want to put that out there, but I really do I would say technically, movie. it's actually not good at all. Like, it's, yeah. it's, I don't mean I don't mean technically in terms of, oh, the plot and everything like that. I mean that there are technical issues with this 100%. movie. 100%. Scenes just, like, cut off, and sometimes... Like the editing is is really schizophrenic. It's really bizarrely. It feels really kind of slapped together sometimes. I assume this was all a coverage issue. That like this movie was shot probably on a low budget. A lot of it is shot in the jungle with explosions and stuff. Sure. And it really feels to me, and Doug, you can tell me if you agree, that they're just working with what they managed to capture. That they didn't they didn't get the coverage because you know maybe that's something. I assume most of our audience knows this, but maybe for the few people who don't, you know. A certain amount of filmmaking is just coverage. It's just, did we get the shot? Did we manage to capture the thing that happened on film or, or video, depending on how you're shooting, or not? And sometimes you just didn't get it. And so you yeah. got to edit around what you actually have. That's how this feels. There's some really fun moments in this movie that are fun if you're not distracted by the fact that it's a mess to watch or it doesn't cut together well. Uh, and yet I still enjoy it. Doug, do we just have bad taste? Because this is not the only movie I enjoy that I could straight up say is an editing nightmare, but I'm still <laughs> having fun watching it. I think we're forgiving when it comes to a movie that, whether it's its intention or whether there's just something about it that you can gleam onto. Like I watched lots of movies when I was a kid that were on a technical side, just garbage, but I still enjoyed them because maybe it's the subject matter or whatever. But here, I think it's there's a combination of a lot of things. I think generally this is 
by those who know this movie. They like it. They do think that in terms of Sergio Santiago's career that is known in the West, that this is one of the higher points of it. It just is not a movie that has been seen that much. I also think that part of it is like this is a movie that uses like lots of day for night and there's lots of dubbing and things like that. But maybe in a more cleaned up version, some <laughs> I wonder uh, in a more cleaned up version, either that would be exemplified like you would see it even more or maybe it would kind of sand out some of those rough edges a little bit. I mean, I'll tell you what, I asked this question, but we already answered it, but I'm going to bring it up again. Doug, you've only seen this version of this movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never seen it in on 35, and if I, if you don't see it on 35, I think that's the only this is the only right. version that we see. And we've said it earlier that this is pretty much a, VH rip, a VHS rip of it. If you go on Tubi right now, you can watch it. Not only is it a VHS rip on Tubi, but it's it's not edited, but they've for some reason they've taken the optical title and they've slapped on their own on it and there's a few frames missing afterwards for some reason and you can tell it just looks so super modern when uh, uh when the savage comes on the screen very very bizarre thing to to do but uh yeah the version that's available is is ugly um yeah i got i got to say my memory might be uh I was going to say, I might be watching it through rose-colored glasses, but that, that's weird to say about a film because it was a little pink, actually. Uh, but <laughs> what I mean to say is, because I have such good memories of that first uh, experience at X-Fest, maybe my memory of this movie is too positive. But, uh, you know, Suze was with me when we saw it, and when I brought up we were covering this movie, we both have really fond memories of it, though, of course, we noticed that it's a little choppy, that the editing is a little weird. All the, all the stuff that we're saying here at a technical level is a little rough, we still remembered very much enjoying this movie and it being one of the standouts of a really strong fest. So mm -hmm. uh, again, anything you see in a theater with a bunch of fans that you're, you're all excited, that might color it a little bit. Oh, but it could really, I mean, you, everyone knows that, um, what they call the film festival eyes, right? Sure, Where you, right. you'll see something and everyone's like raving about it, but then you watch it afterwards. It's like this, this is the movie that you liked. <laughs> it happens, but I'm okay with that. Um, so uh, the other thing I, I wanted to bring up here, so there, this, this is a film that has a lot of action. Um, two of our characters, though, are, and it's hard to say, I guess they're vaudeville performers, but they <laughs> what they do is like circus tricks, right? And yeah. so uh, one of the themes of the movie is throwing knives. Yes. And I got to ask, Doug, what the fuck is up with throwing knives? Because this is not the only movie from the 70s where people are just throwing knives. People like knife throwers. What what the fuck is that about? I don't know. I mean, we just recently, for our Jodowski podcast, watched Santa Sangre, which also has a lot of knife throwing in it. Sure. Um, I've never been to a live knife throwing <laughs> exhibition. Right. And yes. I've been to the circus several times uh, yes. in my lifetime. But uh, that certainly hasn't been part of it. I mean, I think there is a cliche aspect to it. Everyone knows that it's kind of a shorthand of whether it be a vaudeville or circus act. Um, and it does seem to be a skill in this case that can transplant from both the stage to then being a weapon that can be used later, which they used a good effect in this movie. In fact, there's a lot of thrown daggers in this oh, movie yeah. before well, all is said I, and I done. I guess here's my thought, though. Like, okay, so... Uh, there's, you know, throwing knives are current if people watch a show, uh, The Umbrella Academy, right? One of the characters has a bunch of knives that are much more reasonable for throwing than these giant fucking machetes <laughs> she's thrown in this movie. Uh, and, and, you know, it does seem tough and cool, whatever, but he really excels as like a, a single man infiltrating a facility and quietly throwing knives at people, right? Yeah. 
all the knife throwing in this movie is mid-machine gun battle with explosions. And that's when I get confused, Doug. If she wants to sneak in, either one of these characters wants to sneak in like a ninja and throw throw knives in the quiet so people don't find them. That makes a lot of sense. But when you got 12 guys rushing at you with machine guns and you're like, I got to throw it, a knife, I got to throw a knife. This is the same argument that we had when we watched Desperado. And I was saying yes. that Danny Trejo's character yes. with his little knives. I'm like, everyone totally in this town forgot, has a machine but yes. gun. <laughs> <laughs> at least in this one, you can make a case that sometimes it could be useful to at least have a throwing knife. Sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It is, just going back to what you were saying before, though, it is kind of an unusual thing to be like a film trope because the whole tension of knife throwing, in you know, if you saw it in, in person, which, again, I haven't seen, is the idea that someone might get hurt. But it's because you're completely out of control, right? Like you're watching. It's like if that person fucks up, someone could get really hurt here. But in a movie, like it's it's all fake, right? It doesn't matter. All what fake. <laughs> so the danger is either t- taken out of it. Look, in the it, there's still some tension because the character might get hit, but it's all going to be part of the show, right? So uh, I don't know. It doesn't do a lot for me, even though I imagine I don't know what the uh, what the trick is to it in real life. If, if it's just, I honestly don't know. Do you think this if, is also, though, part of the, this is a thing in the 70s where you're putting together a team of, of, of operatives and there's always an operative who's into martial arts, and that makes sense because yeah. you beat people up with that. But a lot of times there was a circus person as if the circus stuff was going to help them do things. And I guess for throwing knives, but a lot of times it'd be like a trapeze person. I'm sorry, <laughs> there's no combat situation where you need a trapeze person wrong wrong again <laughs> no <laughs> way get the fuck not, out of here. well not only of course is the, the movie Jim Cotta, which involves gymnastics oh yeah <laughs> but, but there is a Jim Cotta scene in this movie I don't know if you oh, remember but Carol no, Speed remember. at one point she yes she, I do she oh, spins shit. on a bar <laughs> Well, here's the thing. If you're spinning on a bar, bullets can't hit you. So yeah, well, that's even it, though right? he's shooting I think at Jim... her point-blank range, she flips out of the way and then does some Jim Cotta shit. Yeah. Jim Cotta was invented in this movie. I mean, yeah, I was basically. shocked when it happened. <laughs> uh, we've already talked about this, but it is worth mentioning that I think of all the movies that do it, this movie is the most direct when it comes to the connection between international struggle and black power. And you sort of hinted at this, but I, I made a note of it and I wanted to bring it up again. This actually feels almost more political, and I'm sure that's a coincidence. I don't know that Sirio H. Santiago was like a, a Black Panther revolutionary trying to join the <laughs> Rainbow Coalition, but like you could play this at a meeting and people would be stoked on it because it very much does the thing that I think a lot of black leftists in the 70s were trying to do, which is say, yes, we are part of this civil rights movement in this country, but that is connected to a larger international struggle against colonialism and possibly depending on your viewpoint, capitalism. And I think this movie, though it never names who the bad guys are, it kind of does that, right, Doug? Like, like you kind of know whoever they're struggling against are probably conservative capitalists, right? Right? Like, that's that's just my <laughs> assumption. And they have white people helping them out. So the whole thing looks bad, right? Like, it, Yeah, you no, know? absolutely. But, I mean, that was the era, right? It was the yeah. era of militant revolutionaries. I mean, not, not only – in foreign lands, let's say, but I mean, in the U.S. and Canada, I mean, it was a huge. That was the period where we had revolutionaries doing terrorist act on in Canadian soil. So I mean, it's um, it 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 feels like it was part of something that was in the air at the time that made for good subject matter. But the fact that they almost without exception take the side of the revolutionaries against the oppressive regimes feels somewhat 
unique. It feels like if you were yeah. to make this movie <laughs> in 2022, that it might be, A, it would probably take place in China, and somehow the dictators would be the good guys. Mm. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm going to pretend you just didn't say that, because that just bummed me out. Um <laughs> So I don't know. If, have I talked yet on this podcast about Subas uh, Herrero? Have we talked about? Uh, I don't think so. Him? So here's the deal. If it wasn't for how memorable Vic Diaz is, right, in the sense that when he is in a movie, he very much uh, sort of becomes a larger than life character. I very much would have considered this podcast being called Whatever Happened to Subas Herrero? Because he is the other person I remember from a lot of these movies. And he actually was in, um, until he passed away in 2013, about as many movies as Vic Diaz was. It's just he wasn't in quite as many of a certain era of exploitation that has like been more impactful on me. So I went more easily to Vic Diaz. But he's in this movie, and it's, it's a small role. But I just want to mention him. When he comes up, I want to mention my man Subas here because he's another person who I feel like when I first started exploring some of these Filipino movies that were featured in Machete Maidens, he was another familiar face where I'd be like, oh, he's in this. Okay. Yeah, yeah I remember the, him. He was in Savage Sisters as well, yep, I believe. Yep, yep, yep. And I think he was in The Big Birdcage. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not as familiar with his career as you are, but he's the gentleman who accidentally blows himself up at the end of the movie. I believe that's right, yes. <laughs> I mean, poor fella. <laughs> to be fair, he did get shot. Yes, you know, but yeah, he didn't do it out of out of, out of being silly. But or, that whole or... scene was very was very affirming because the whole movie he wants dynamite. He just wants dynamite so yep. bad, and then he finally got some dynamite. He got to blow some people up. Yeah, I mean, he was he was not maybe in as <laughs> well, many not his own petard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. He was not he was not in as many sort of classic. Uh, Roger Corman sort of movies, or uh, as Vic Diaz was, sure. Uh, but he was in a number of, um, I think very memorable exploitation movies, um, and a few that maybe um people might be more familiar with recently because of recent releases. So, example, he was in Supercock, which recently got a release. That's right. Um, and then he was in a number of like more um eighties stuff, like he was in Enter the Ninja, mm-hmm. and he was in um. Delta Force uh, 2? Yep, Delta Force 2. Um, and it looks like there was a number of 80s movies made in the Philippines, Filipino movies, that were copying some of the trends in U.S. exploitation stuff. And he was in a bunch of those, a lot of them with names I won't attempt to pronounce because my Tagalog is not very reliable. Um, you know, so, but but the point is, he, he did work a ton. I think if we had tried to do him instead of Vic Diaz, it just would have been harder because it's less American production. So we would have spent a lot You'd run out of it very, very quickly yeah, because yeah, especially yeah. if you didn't want to just focus on this 70s period because he's in Bamboo Gods and Iron Man as well. But I mean, you know, he was also in Too Hot to Handle, which we just covered yep, yep. very recently on this yep. podcast. Yeah, so uh, what did you think of him? He's, like we said, he's very briefly, He, I mean, he's in the movie the whole time, but it's not a huge role. Um, and he, he does come to a, you know, a bit of a, a sad end, I guess. But what did you think of him in this movie? Because I, I li- he always I like sticks the- out to me. Yeah, he sticks out because he has some personality, right? A lot of yeah. the revolutionaries, they all kind of blend together. And even their leader, the, the woman who plays the leader, she doesn't really 
distinguish herself very much. She's not oh, I think she's the character. worst part of the movie, yeah. honestly. Right, but I mean, it's almost important that she isn't too interesting because <laughs> since she's she's going to have to lose that position anyway. But no, I think she has a lot of fun, particularly his end, where he's throwing the, the dynamite. And you're like, this guy is a badass. And, you know, he also is a very distinctive looking. You could see that he's exactly the kind of guy that could make this look like it's in Mexico instead of in the Philippines. You know, right. just the way that sometimes Vic Diaz play, is playing every Asian nation, right? He plays Japanese, he plays Filipino, he plays uh, Chinese. You know, Subas has that look, the very kind of stereotypical um, Mexican that you would have in like in a, a spaghetti Western. Right, and, and yes. It, it, just, it just makes this more kind of ill-defined in terms of where it's taking place. Yeah, and you know... I, We've talked about that, but it is worth mentioning that, you know, part of the reason I think the Philippines did get cast so much as Mexico was because uh, in comparison to other parts of East Asia, it is a little bit more ambiguous because of the Spanish influence. The language has a lot of Spanish in it. The yeah. names are very sort of Spanish. You know, it's it's all whenever I meet someone who appears Asian to me and has a Spanish last name, I tend to think, oh, they're probably Filipino. You know, like, for example, my co-host Josh Alvarez, you know, because of the history of Spanish colonialism in the Philippines. And some of it was just laziness, you know, like we can film for so cheap in the Philippines. Right, we'll, just, right. we'll just make it anywhere we want. But I do think like it, it might seem for people who are unaware of the strong Spanish influence on the Philippines, it might seem utterly random. Like, why would you set something in the Philippines that's supposed to be in Mexico or in other parts of Latin America? It's like, well, it's not completely crazy. You know, like there is some relationship there. So um it's Anyways. also interesting how like everybody speaks English in this, right? Like even right, the radio right. station is entirely in English. There isn't a suggestion. So like there's no difficulty for someone like James Iglehart's character to maneuver within it because everyone speaks exclusively English. Well, even I though think, a lot of the actors are dubbed over in this. Well, I think it's very telling too that um there's not a lot of and this happens in a lot of these movies. We haven't mentioned it before. We probably should have. There's not a lot of Philippine culture in these movies, no, right? Not it's in just this a, one in particular. It's just a background. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it it it, it might speak to the idea that maybe uh, Santiago really thought it was obvious that this isn't the Philippines because there's nothing Filipino in it, really, other than the the people, right? But there's not like a lot of the culture in it. And maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. I it, it's. I'm not saying there's a definitive answer per se, but I do wonder if like he thought, well, who we are isn't in this movie. It's just the land as a background. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, no, absolutely. I, I mean, we have seen a few of these movies on this podcast where it does kind of investigate like the Filipino nightlife right. and things yes. like that. And it feels or, or for that bit... part, for, for that matter, martial arts. A couple movies. Yeah, have well, absolutely. Arts, and right? in fact, there's something like Bloodfist, right, where the person comes to the Philippines and it's very much like part of it is supposed to be fish out of water stuff. In this case, it's just supposed to be somewhere else. It's somewhere else, somewhere foreign, and you can't go into much detail because then you'd have to distinguish what that somewhere else actually is. Yeah, because there's, there's almost nothing that takes place. You see, like, buildings, but you don't see, like, a cityscape, or you don't see, like, uh, uh, really even... There, there's whole scenes of people it's like t trying to tell the general public to rise up against your oppressors, but you never see the general public in never. any capacity. <laughs> so, uh, as usual, our man gets to be a memorable villain in this movie. He is the Minister of Defense, uh, and he's kind of the, the most sort of senior person that we see a lot of the movie. Uh, but, he, yeah, he gets to be 
kind of a mustache mustache twirler in some of these scenes here, Doug. What did you think of the man himself, Vic Diaz, in Savage? He's in his wheelhouse here, Liam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, the more that we see these roles, especially the ones in the 70s, how he's basically playing the same role. It's like, this one, he's evil, and maybe he's gay. And this one, he's evil, and maybe he's Japanese. But just for the, just generally, he's just a slimy, kind of gross, evil man. There's not much more to him, but he does it with such relish that you always love when he shows up. And he certainly has a unique ending to his character in this film. It feels like whenever he's not evil, he's tired. Like, if I'm thinking of a role for Vic Diaz, <laughs> the few times where he's, like, the good guy on your side, he's also, like, tired. You know, he's just like, I've been doing this a long time. Whatever it is, <laughs> that's what I picture. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, but, it, again, it it is it is a, it is a uh, – a pigeonhole or whatever, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a familiar sort of place where he's been, but there's a reason, man. I, I really like him in this movie. I don't think it's the first time he stuck out to me because I definitely saw a few of these um, women in prison movies before I saw Savage, but it was one of the ones where I thought I've seen this guy before. He's pretty cool. I wonder what else he's been in. You know what I mean? Um, and, And there's a reason for that because while he's not the focus of the movie, He's certainly more memorable to me than random mean white man. Like it's basically yeah. him and this old white man who's just That's there. Metcalf, who we've also seen in a number of. Oh, sure, but he as a character, yeah. that character is nothing. His also, role he's a is shitty to be actor. Right. He's really yeah. not good. At yeah, 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 yeah. And so, like, of course, Victor stands out as the most interesting villain in the movie. Whereas, <laughs> you know, white man, you're just like, when are you gonna kill this white man? Come on, he sucks. Uh, the only the only other memorable villain really is the is the traitor. Uh, um, but you know, I think that role is is not nearly as interesting to me as VTS yeah, a very underbaked movie. role for yeah, sure, very much. So yeah, I, I I thought he was fun in this. Again, none of these roles are maybe like all time. You know, only a few have been like really really juicy. But he brings what he needs to to make this memorable, even if it's not like the deepest character ever. <laughs> I think he's a lot of fun. Why don't you tell us about his death, by the way, in this film? Oh, Doug, I just forgot. How does he die in this No, film? I'm glad that you did, Liam. I'm, I put you on the spot specifically because I'm not sure I understand his death. He's having sex. Do you recall? There's a gross scene where Vic Diaz is having sex and someone calls him on the phone. And it appears that he, at first, is uh, providing oral pleasure, Liam. Uh, oh, he, yes, 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 yes. And then, uh, as things continue, someone is giving him oral pleasure. And then what happens? Do you recall? Does he have a heart attack? He just fucking dies. I he don't know dies. how he dies. Right. It's very confusing. No, There's no I do cutaway. Remember. I do remember because that's. I think that's why I was like, what, what happens? Because it's not clear, right? He he does briefly get a look on his face that maybe could be construed as an orgasm joke. Yes, absolutely. But then they're like, he dead. he's dead. That's got to be on purpose, right? That's supposed to be funny. Or do you think they just lost him? Like he left the production and they couldn't film with him anymore. So they're like, oh, I don't know. He's dead. I think it's more likely that the person that they were supposed to cut to left the production. Like, there was supposed to be one scene of a woman, you know, grabbing a knife oh, or something sure. like that, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't know. It, it is very strange. And I have to say, I was afterwards, I was like, was that me? Am I the one who's confused here because I just don't understand mechanics of this? But yeah, no, I think it's just kind of a... I think you're exactly right. It's supposed to be kind of like a funny thing. But for a character that at that point was built up as... One of the big baddies in the movie, it is a really kind of underwhelming death. 
it is one of the examples of how, though I enjoy this movie, and I definitely don't feel bad recommending this movie, it is not an even thing it is no. it is messy it is choppy that's a great example of and it's hard to know like why a scene would have been cut right because there's plenty well, maybe not plenty but there's a significant amount of nudity in the movie yeah. so what what could have happened maybe there was a, a a violence to his johnson joke that was deemed <laughs> unacceptable for the cinemas i don't know but they they unceremoniously just off him off like he's dead now Oh, okay, sure. Uh, I guess he's dead. Sure, that makes sense. It Did one of our guys do it? I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. That's 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 uh, that's savage. I like it. I like this movie, Doug. But I think the people who will enjoy this movie are people who are already primed to be stoked on low-budget Filipino movies, yeah, which is why they probably are listening to this podcast. So there you I go. will say that the only thing – like I – can smooth over a lot of these technical issues. The only thing that distracted me throughout it was James Iglehart's facial hair changes in length from yep, scene to scene. Yep. Like sometimes he won't have a, like a mustache at all, and then it'll just cut to the next scene, and he has it. It's a, it's you know you can tell that they were rushing through this. I tried not to focus on that too much because I love his sideburns. Like they are yeah. the most irrational, unjustifiable sideburns I've seen in a long time. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it's not. There are definitely continuity issues here. Um, I, I don't know if anyone on set knows exactly how long a, a period of time this movie occurs over. Like, I don't know that anyone stopped to go, has it been a year? Has it been two months? I don't know. Who knows? Okay. That was Savage. On our next episode, Doug, we're going to be talking about 1980, 1988's Spider, spelled with a Y, by the way. Spider. Uh, a movie I have never heard of ever. I was so excited. Look at that art, that it box looks great. art that I've included here. And this there's is another no... Sirio Santiago, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he produced this one, didn't direct it. Sure. But uh, he uh, – and screenplay by Steve Rogers, Captain America himself. Um, I went over to Letterboxd because there's no plot description on IMDb at all. It's descript uh, described here as a rich businessman hires a team of Vietnam vets to get his son out of Vietnam – but this group of mercenaries don't plan to go into Vietnam. They just want the money. They make a mistake by killing policeman Brad Spider's partner, and now he only wants revenge. Wow, that is the most convoluted thing in a while that I've heard. Okay, cool. I'm excited for Spider. Hopefully people will join us back here uh, on our next episode to discuss 1988's Spider. Uh <laughs> Doug, in the meantime, if people are interested in more of this show or in some of the other shows that we are uh, related to, where, where should they go? What should they do? Well, you can always find the latest episodes over at Cinepunks.com, which also has a lot of other wonderful podcasts and great writing. You can check out a lot of a recent coverage of the Chattanooga Film Fest, and I believe there's some upcoming uh, reviews uh, still to come, but you can check that out on Cinepunks.com. If you want to check out the entire archive of whatever happened to Vic Diaz, go over to Cinemasmorgasbord.com, where you can also find all of our Cinemasmorgasbord podcasts, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, as the career of Carol Kane, as the career of Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, uh, Paul Bartel, and others. Dick Miller included all and Eric Roberts, of course, all over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. Yeah, they can also find Cinepunks on social media, C-I-N-E, P-O-N-X, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Of course, I'm on Twitter at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and Doug's on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. You know, Liam, it's funny that, you know, I spell my name all the time on this. I need to start spelling my first name because uh, my wife, uh, her family in the United States, 
they had a cat that recently passed away, so we sent them some flowers, uh, and we had someone uh, write. Uh, we we told them to write on the card, and they wrote Jill and Doug on it, and they spelled my first name D O U G H. So they said it's from Jill and Doe. Doe. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even take that seriously. All right, hey. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time. In the meantime, good night.